I was disappointed in myself at one level because um, I was really, really critical, super critical. Part of that is an occupational hazard of pastors. They have a hard time like entering into worship with anybody else um, and, and not being like, wow, the lighting is so bad right now or the, uh, the sound system's terrible or that guy just totally missed the point of that sermon or whatever. Um, but, but part of it is this, part of it is this, part of it's the occupational hazard thing. Part of it is that um, I don't feel that way here because I do my evaluation later and my participation now, see? And that's easy for me because I'm about to teach and I've been working on this all week. So I, I've been thinking about this all week. Um, but so my invitation to you is to resist the very easy temptation to just, to just observe, to spectate. Please don't do that, you gotta participate. And I know it's hard to participate when it's one person talking to a bigger group. It's easier to participate when you have a role to play or you're responsible for something, but it's so important that we don't become spectators or observers, but that we make ourselves participate in this worship gathering. And maybe that is helpful for you to write stuff down. Maybe you need to like shout something out to me or ask a question or raise a hand or get involved with somebody else or talk to some about what's going on. We just can't let ourselves slip into this mindless sort of observation. In other words, I hope you don't sit back, relax, and enjoy the service. I hope you fight with it. I hope you wrestle with it. I hope you'll engage with it. I hope you'll write down some ideas and some thoughts and some things that really kind of frustrate you or whatever, and that you work around them and, and make this something that you're in, something that you're participating in. Amen? Amen. All right. Raise your hand if you like a Bible, and um, my Uncle Al or somebody else on the usher team will hand one out to you. Also, there's baskets on the sides of the um, aisles. And if you'd pass a basket down, those just have communication cards in them. So if you'd like to hand off a card with your contact information or um, a, a prayer request, we pray over these on Mondays. Would love to um, hear any feedback you have from the cards. All right. And then we'll be in this letter at the end of the Bible called James. We're almost done with a series on James called Now Do This. Um, today's uh, sermon is, uh, well, I'll talk to you about it in more. Let me, let me start by telling you a couple of stories. Um, page number, I think, for James is in your sermon notes. Okay, when I was, I think I was 13 years old. It was the second game of the baseball season, and uh, I was up to bat, and I caught this outside pitch, and I popped it up over the, over the right field fence. I hit a home run, my first out-of-the-park home run. Uh, I think actually my only out of the park home run ever in my life. Yeah, I hit this rocket of a ship that went over the 164 foot mark, which if you're, yeah, really tiny field up in Auburn, really tiny field. Anyway, it was the first time for me to ever hit a home run. So I was fired up and I came around the bases and I went into the dugout and I sat there, I stood there at the fence and I just rattled the fence. And I think, looking back, I think what happened was that rattling the fence hit my coach's nose or something because he went, instantly he got upset and he said, sit down. And then he said, and, I, and he didn't mean for me to hear this part, but I heard it. He said, you got lucky. Yeah. I got one hit the rest of the season. It crushed me. It crushed me. Still remember it. I don't remember his face. I don't remember his name, but I remember the word. I remember the word. A couple years later, I was, uh, it was the summer before my sophomore year of high school, and we were already starting football practice. And I got called in by my uh, junior varsity football coach, Steve March, to his office, and he reprimanded me. He said, you're not leading. 
What is, your, what is the problem? You're not leading. You're the leader and you're not leading. Like step up and lead this football team. It lasted about 15 seconds and then he left. And I floated out of that office. I was like, I'm the leader. I'm the leader? I didn't know I was the leader. I'm the leader. <laughs> so, so this was so interesting to me. And so I took this picture a couple weeks ago because he was honored at my alma mater. They named the track for him. And I remember his face, I remember his name, and I remember his story because I remember his words. And the words that he continued to speak into my life, they changed my life. His words changed my life. Isn't this fascinating? I hit a home run out of the park. It should be a great memory. It's a sad, hard memory for me because of the word. I get reprimanded by my football coach. It should be like an embarrassing memory. It's a life-changing, powerful memory for me because of the word, because of the word that he spoke. What word mattered to you? What word mattered to you? We've all heard that words don't really matter. Haven't you heard that? Words don't really matter. But we all have words in our minds, in our memories, in our hearts that have mattered. I think we all have words that have mattered. What, what words mattered to you? Lucky, that was one that mattered to me in a negative way. Leader, that's word, that, that word put me on a whole nother, a whole nother journey. How about you? I want to encourage you to write a word down, or maybe two. Maybe it's a hard word. Maybe it was a negative word that shaped you in a hurtful way. Maybe it was a word that propelled you forward. We don't have time for the story, and I don't want to put that pressure on you, but would anyone just tell us what the word was, what a word was? Anyone want to share just a word? What was it, Mark? Short. Thanks for going deep with us. Maybe that is deep. Who knows? Thanks, Mark. Short. What's another word? Levi. Never? Never? Oh, i got to hear that story. Okay, brother. <laughs> I'm going to just collect stories. We'll set up some coffees after this. Somebody else, another word. Kathy. Brave. Brave. Good. It's a great word. Anybody else? A word that made an impact on your life. Shaped you. Um, Nicole. Strong. Strong. Good. Brother Riddle. I do. Yeah, that's so great. That's so great. There he is. Stephen. I'm sorry? Arrived? Good. Yes, John. Lack of. Interesting. Yeah, good. All these words. Uh, so I want to do this morning, the title of this morning's sermon is Stop Talking. And I want to consider making the spiritual, the whole series has been on making the spiritual more practical, and today I want to talk about making the spiritual more practical by focusing on what we say, by focusing on what we say. Let's go to James chapter 3 to, um, to root our thoughts in this morning. Um, James is going to do three things to start off with here in James chapter 3. James is the little brother of Jesus. He writes, writes this really practical letter, really, really meaningful, practical, challenging, helpful letter. And in the third chapter, he begins by doing essentially three things. He's going to give a warning to us, and then he's going to give grace to us, and then he's going to come, kind of come back again and say, but be careful and pay attention because this really does matter. He's going to give a warning, and then he's going to say, it's, it's grace, and then, but 
Pay attention to what I said because it really matters. Here's the warning. Whoops, sorry, there it is, page 848. I was trying to remember the page number. Here's the warning. Chapter 3, verse 1. Not many should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Most of the time when I hurt people, I hurt them with my words. I, I don't mean to do that, but it just happens. And here's why it happens. Because I'm always talking. I'm always talking. I come to church to talk. It's a, it's a hazard. I, I am just constantly talking. Sometimes I'll get emails that begin with, something you said in church really bothers. Does anyone else get emails from this community saying, something you said in church? Probably not. I get those emails, not a lot, but occasionally I'll get those emails because of this one reason. I'm, I'm just always talking. Today is our 580th gathering. Some of you have been here since the beginning. Some of you have heard me preach over 500 sermons. I usually speak about 3,000 words when I preach. So some of you have heard me speak over a million and a half words. That is a whole lot of words from one person, right? It's easy to do that uh, when, when you're uh, listening to the same guy. So I'm sure that there's something that I've said out of those million and a half words that's been really unwise, really stupid, probably totally wrong, uh, and maybe even hurtful, maybe even hurtful. I know for a fact that I've hurt people that I really care about with my, with my words. And it's easy to do that when you're talking all the time. And so James begins with a warning. And it's essentially a warning about the frequency with which you just t talk. But then he says something that I really appreciate as a teacher. And I think we could all kind of appreciate it in general. Because it's just this beautifully grace-filled, um, real-life, let's just be honest statement in verse 2. He says, we all stumble in many ways. This is my favorite verse this month. I just love this verse. I've never seen anyone, uh, you know, suggest that we memorize James 2 too, but we should. We should. We all stumble in many ways. I just love how straight and honest this is. I've been thinking about it all week. Last week, we talked about um, addressing judgment with mercy. If you were here, we talked about instead of showing favoritism, based on outward appearance, to be merciful. Well, the only thing that's really helped me to be merciful to others is to recognize that I also need mercy. That's been the most helpful thing in shaping me toward a more merciful person. In other words, it's the recognition that I stumble in many ways. And you stumble in many ways. We all stumble in many ways. I think we'd be a really merciful community if we all just came with shirts that said, I stumble in many ways. It's just kind of like, sorry, we'd be less rude on the road if people, the guy who cut us off had a bumper sticker that says, I'm sorry, I just stumble in many ways. I'm a terrible driver. Just, I'm sorry, I admit it, right? Um, but then he explains why this actually matters. And this is really important, I think, in our culture because we can get really casual about our words and the importance of what we say. We can get really sloppy with our words, we can think, my words really don't matter. The language that I use doesn't really matter. But here's James's perspective. No, it actually matters a lot. And here's the core of his argument in verse 2. He says, anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Now, stick with me here. He says, we all stumble in many ways, including previous verse, in what we say. Anyone who is never at fault in what we say is perfect, able to get their whole body in check. Another translation, able to control their entire body, 
Another translation has self-control in every other way, if you can control your words. Another translation, able to bridle the whole body. What is James saying? He's saying it's really hard to control what you say, but it's really important to control what you say. It really matters. And here's why it really matters. Because there, if your ability to control what you say is connected to your ability to control everything else that you do. That's the, that is the rare ancient spiritual connection that is lost in our culture today. That your ability to control your words, we think not that big a deal. James says it's a really big deal because it's connected to your ability to control anything else that you do. Now in the previous section, which we didn't preach on here, is the famous section where James is talking about faith without actions is worthless. Uh, in other words, James says, you can believe in God and it's not that big a deal. Even the demons believe in God. If your belief doesn't produce actions in line with what you say you believe, then James says your faith is dead. And, and so actions, the things that we do, the things that we do are important. And now James moves on to say, if you can't even control your tongue, you're going to have a really hard time controlling all the other things that you do. Does this make sense? The rest of your body. Or put another way, if we adopt the common idea in our culture that we can be undisciplined with our words and stay in control of the rest of our body, James says, oh, you are mistaken. You are confused. And then he gives three analogies to support his point. Three analogies. An analogy about a horse, ship, and a forest fire, here they come in the subsequent verses. Verse 3 of James 3. When we put bits into the mouths of horses and make them obey, uh, to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. That's a really easy analogy to understand, right? If you can control the mouth, you can control the beast. Next analogy, James says, or take ships as an example. Although they're so large, they're driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants them to go. Or a third analogy, likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. He's going to throw down some really strong language, and I am encouraging you to hear that, to hear it, to hear it, even though it's going to hit, hit us as strong. So James begins now to lean in on the power of words. And first, what he's going to, on the impact of what you say, and on first, what he's going to talk about is the destructive power of words, and it's going to feel harsh. And then he'll talk about the creative power of words. James used pretty intense language to talk about the destructive power of the spoken word. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself on fire by hell. Set on fire, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Almost shocking, isn't it? Almost shockingly strong language. It's really surprising to me, frankly. 
Nick Zerwas and I studied James together in preparation for this series. And after all this beautiful, really practical spiritual instruction, at the end of James, he comes back and he says, now, above all else, and we both were like, oh, cool, here it is. Don't swear. We're like, really? Really? That's above all else? That's the most important? Let your yes be yes, your no be no. James has some really strong language about language, about the use of words. But he's not the only one. And this is why I read ancient Christians, because their perspective is different from ours, and it may be corrective. It's very helpful to hear a different sort of perspective. I put these in your notes. Um, Jerome, uh, an ancient church father, I won't name all the guys, but I put them in your notes. He says this. uh, These are some sobering observations. He says, the devil did not fall because he committed theft, murder, or adultery. He fell because of his tongue. Isn't that powerful? It's interesting. Another one, another church father. Guard the tip of your tongue, for it is like a majestic stallion. If you let it run wild, it becomes the vehicle of the devil and his angels. Another church father from the 6th century. The bragging tongue fouls the whole body and is gangrene to the soul. These guys are using the strongest language they know how to use to warn us about the power of speech and the tongue. Um, a, a church father named Bede tells two stories. He tells one story about a household manager that trains, I love this phrase, an immense asp that the snake emerged each day from its hole and brought to the owner his food for the day. A snake does this, right? And then he tells another story about a domesticated tigress that's brought from India to the Roman emperor and hunts for him. And then he says, that kind of thing is child's play compared with the art of taming the tongue because the tongue is much wilder and much more ferocious than any animal. Interesting. Uh, Another preacher from the 5th, 4th century compares the tongue to the piercing of the sword. And then there's a generation of preachers that come after that, and it's as though they've heard the objections. It's as, it's as though they've, they've heard the pushback. No, you're making too big a deal about the words that I use and the way that I use my speech. And so there's a, several of these guys who go ahead and they create lists of sins that are rooted in our speech, like this, whoops, deception, verbal abuse, cursing, boasting, Oh, it's not that big a deal. Well, have you ever, you know, quarreled with somebody, lied, committed perjury? Another list from another guy, slanders, coarse jokes, idiocies. You just sound idiotic. You just, it's just painful to be around you because you're saying stupid stuff. Uh, it's a sin. Um, irrelevant accusations, uh, bitterness, swearing, false witness, Another says, the tongue leads to rashness. He says, it causes us to make wrong decisions and leads us into rashness. I totally resonate with this. I totally get it. This has always been a challenge for me. It's been a challenge since I was a little kid. I was 11 years old down by the Auburn Ravine, hanging around with some of my buddies, just being stupid, climbing on rocks, trying to show how tough I was, how brave I was, how I was the bigger man than they were. And one thing led to another, and I said, I can jump off this rock and keep running. And they're like, no, you can't. Nobody can jump. And I said, I can. I jumped off the rock. I couldn't walk after that. And they had to go get their dad to carry me to the house. Stupid, right? Boasting, like rash decisions. I've always had this tendency to talk too much, to exaggerate, to want to make people think that I can do stuff that maybe is really kind of challenging to me. But once I think you think I can do it, then I think I can do it. And and so I, I talk a lot about that, right? 
Maybe this is why in the last, like, I don't know, maybe 10 years of my life, I've just become so captivated by monks. I think it's part of the reason I've become so fascinated. This ancient Christian monastic uh, communities, like the Benedictines, who place such a high value on not talking. Initially, I think the idea of monks walking around in sober silence might sound kind of oppressive. But observing times of silence during the day was actually just a really, really effective, practical tool to shape the souls of, of sinful men. And I just find this fascinating. In his little book called The Rule, St. Benedict lays out the very first known 12-step program. When you hear 12-step program, you probably think Alcoholics Anonymous or something like that, Narcotics Anonymous. Well, the 12-step program that Benedict outlines in his book predates this by 1,400 years. And it's a 12-step program that addresses those who are addicted to pride. To pride. It's 12 steps towards humility. And it's super, super intense. Like the third step of his 12 steps is to submit your life to another out of love for God. Submit your life to another out of love for God. The fifth step is to confess the sins in your mind, your thoughts, to confess your sinful thoughts to somebody else. He's like, you want to you fix this pride issue you got? You want to move towards humility? And then later in the steps, they become more and more focused on the use of your words. The ninth step is to remain silent unless you're asked a question. And the 11th step is to speak only softly and with a few words. And, and I think there's this tendency to just sort of write this kind of spiritual discipline off as archaic or ridiculous or extreme, unnecessarily extreme. But I would encourage you, as I've encouraged, consider how different your, your life would be. How, consider how different your day would be if you simply adjusted your speech. If you simply change the way you speak, if you only used your words to heal and never to hurt, if you only word, used your words to lift others up and, and never compare yourself to them or, or tear them down. So I do this each week as a, as a point of personal uh, commitment and discipline, and I credit my mentor from college. In other words, I apply what I teach on Sundays to my life the previous week. And I've been, so I've been working on this this last week, and I've been terrible at it. I've been terrible. It's been really, really hard to adjust the way I speak. I, I've been speaking this way for 43 years. I just do it. And it's really, really challenging. And I, I realize it after I've said something. How, how I, just, I just had to say something right there. Um, it's a difficult thing to do. Much of, what, um, much of what we say is rooted in all kinds of messiness inside. And so rather than to write this off, I hope that you'll consider embracing this as a possible way of making your spirituality more practical. Now, some of what, so far, what we've read is about the destructive power of words. James focuses on that. The others seem to focus on that as well because their, their desire seems to be to correct sins. But then he also focuses, secondly, on the, on the creative power of words. Like in verse 9, he says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father which is just a simple statement, but it's so powerful. In other words, the most sacred act humanity is capable of happens with our, with our words. We use our words as part of the most sacred thing we can do. Like God who spoke creation into being, who created all things by saying words, like let there be light, 
We can actually name things. We can name children. We can call gifts and skills and abilities out of people by naming them. We can speak life-changing statements to people. You are brave. We can say that to people. You are brave. You're the leader. John, the Apostle John, who writes the book of Revelation, the end of the Bible, this description of his vision of heaven, it's full of words. It's full of people speaking words, but they're true, and they're God-word. Like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, and that's the song. Everybody's singing it over and over and over again. Words, beautiful, truthful, creative words, on and on and on. So James writes, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. But then he kind of bumps right back to it. He says, but with it, we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. It's like, this is the height of inconsistency for James. He's just like, can you believe that we do both? He says, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? So, Friends, I would love for our community to grow into this garden of creative and healing and truthful words. One where one of the things that we value the most here at Emmaus is that Emmaus is a multi-generational community, that people of all different generations are sharing life together, that there's older folks with younger folks, and it's multi-generational in different ways too. It's different life phases. Also different places in our spiritual development. Some people who are just looking for Jesus, just sort of exploring God. Other people who are mature in their faith, all coming together. So the point is that we have such this huge potential to have a really meaningful ministry of words here. And it's exciting to me. I imagine people in their 60s and 70s uh, noticing undeveloped potential. And, and, and you're, you're already doing this. This is why you're sitting in hard chairs in a cafeteria and not some plush. You already do it. This is why some of you are here. You're not annoyed by the kids, but you've got an eye for the untapped potential in the kids. And you're going to speak truth into them and say, I see this in you. You're always helping your mother. You're such a giving person. And then that kid just understands who they are a little bit better, right? You're such a servant. You're, I love how you sing that you're so brave to be participating in that. And then I can imagine this, the kids who are in this atmosphere where the truth is being told, where, where healing and helpful words are being spoken, growing into confidence and in their ability to speak back. And so maybe they go to somebody who's older than them and they say, they start to understand, you've been faithful. You're always here. Just a simple observation from a child that might just remind somebody in their 60s or 70s what their purpose may be. You're, you're so uh, caring. You're so encouraging to me. You're so kind. I can just see this continue to support and build on itself um, and to, to build such a, a powerful part of the ministry that we share in. Let me end with just offering four really practical ideas. I want this to be really, really practical um, because I really want to encourage you to give this a try this week. First, pay attention to what you say and evaluate it. <clears throat> After a meeting with somebody, when you go back to your car or back to your desk, how did I contribute to that meeting with my words? Was I speaking because I had something important to offer or because I just needed to get in and share my opinion and make sure I got heard? After a shared meal, ask, what tone did I bring to the table? What tone did my words carry? Did I talk about myself the whole time? 
Did I point out anything good about anybody else? Did I say anything that was encouraging or true about somebody else? Did I sin with my words? Did I gossip? Did I slander? Did I lie? I have found, I am, I, I am so, I'm so much better than I used to be. So I used to be really, but I'm, st- I'm so critical. I'm so critical. So I'll come home tired, pulled in seven directions. I'll, I'll trip on something in the hallway. I'll see something that I asked somebody to deal with. And by the time I reach the kitchen, there's like seven irritants, and I just sort of explode with this string of criticism. Oh, how nice, Dad's home, <laughs> right? The critical one has arrived. And, and I'll realize after putting my kids to bed that, that I just used my words to criticize everything. My, my boy's room's a disaster. And so we end the night in the boy's room, and I'm like, ah, what's going on in here? Right? It's a terrible way to end the day with your boys, right? Like, I need to get above that. Um, so pay attention to what you say and evaluate it. And get ready to feel smaller after you do that. Uh, <laughs> Secondly, ask somebody else to help, help you hear yourself accurately. Because you're justifying the whole thing the whole time. I am. So ask somebody else, what do I sound like? What kind of words are coming out of my mouth? Try this. If you were to impersonate me, what would I sound like and what would I be saying? <laughs> Sometimes my wife will gently point out that if I were to be recorded, I probably wouldn't like what I hear or what I say. Here's a third idea that I would offer. Practice silence. Practice complete or partial silence. Practice silence for a period of time or just partial silence for a season. What do I mean by partial silence? Like, here's an example. Silence your opinions. Decide, today I'm not going to share my opinions unless somebody distinctly asks what I think. Or maybe another way is silence your jokes. Some of us, we just, we want, we're trying to get people to laugh at us all day long. Uh, we, we need to be sort of the center of amusement. Um, and a lot of people really appreciate that, but it can, it can also become very self-centered. It can be like, hey, pay attention to me. Maybe we silence our jokes. Uh, thirdly, maybe you silence your complaints. Once Carmen and I organized a silent retreat for couples, so we went away for the weekend, and we shared meals, and we heard readings during our meals from the Bible, and the couples shared rooms, but we observed silence from Friday night until Sunday morning, and it was such an eye-opening experience for me. I realized several really important things during that weekend that I'm still living out. For instance, I realized... Friday night, I realized I was super cold and I realized I'd forgotten to pack my socks. I was in flip-flops. I forgot to pack my socks and I wanted so bad to tell Carmen, I forgot my socks. And I was like, why do I want to tell her so badly that I forgot my socks? Why is it so important to me that she knows that, well, because all that would do, I could play it out of my head. Carmen, I forgot my socks. She would have said like, ah, oh, too bad. And I would have been like, I know. But I wanted to tell her so bad, right? And, and, and I noticed several things that week, but this was one of the main themes, that every time I, like, I don't always complain, but when I do, I complain to my wife, right? Who wants to be married to a complainer? 
Nobody wants to be married to a complainer. And so that was very eye-opening to me. What is, why do I need to complain to my wife? Why does that? There's this huge value in observing seasons of silence. In fact, if you're interested in, uh, in being part of a silent retreat, I think it'd be one of the most powerful things that you could do. And so I want to encourage you just to respond right now if you're like, gosh, that would be really interesting. I think I could actually grow through that. Uh, we, we're putting together a silent retreat, and if you're interested in hearing more information about it, we're going to keep it kind of quiet. Um, <laughs> this, um, yeah, text... Text, oh, thanks. Thanks for fixing that. Text ECC, no talking, no talking has no spaces. ECC, Emmaus Church Community space, no talking, to 51400, and we'll send you um, information about a silent retreat we're putting together. Fourth and final idea that I'll just share, I'll just offer. Um, these have been on kind of on the net. Here's a positive one. If there's something good, if there's something true, if there's something important that you've been considering telling someone, tell them. You know, your mom told you if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything. And what I'm telling you right now is if you have something good to say, say it. If you have something good to say, then say it. I remember uh, th- this, can feel, this can feel kind of... Um, Awkward. Some of you are natural encouragers, so you're encouraging people all the time. Most of us feel a little awkward just walking up to somebody, like at the passing of the peace in a few minutes, and just saying something serious and meaningful and admirable, right? Uh, but you should do that. You, you should do that. I was, um, 12 years ago, I was driving with a buddy of mine named Josh to Bakersfield for the funeral of Josh Unfried, who just led us in worship. And I remember Josh's mom's funeral super clearly. I remember Josh's words about his mom. I remember Josh's little brother singing the songs that his mom taught him to sing. And one of the things, uh, Josh and I were able to share life during that season, it was a gift to me. One of the things that Josh was so grateful for was that they knew his mom was sick, they knew it was gonna end, and they had time to, to share stuff, to talk, to be honest with each other. And it was powerful to see this happening. And it was sobering to me to see someone as young as Josh. I don't even think you were 30 yet, Josh, right? Um, It was sobering to think of somebody that young losing someone like that. And specifically this, not being able to talk to them anymore. And so driving back from Josh's mom's funeral, I resolved to tell my mom how I felt about her. And I did. We went on a walk on the beach, and it was, you know, it was, it was emotional, and it was a little awkward, um, and I think at, at first she was kind of like, why are you telling me this? Um, and, but I just pushed through that, and it was like, I want you to know some things. I have some things that are really important for me to say to you. I think you're amazing. I think you did a great job. I want you to know that. Let me just end with this story. Um, I was teaching at a camp in Wisconsin, and it was a high school camp, and I was teaching every morning, every night, and so I arrived early one morning, and I thought I was teaching to a big group of high school kids, but I was mistaken. Instead, it was just 12 full-time staff people. And I was supposed to, I thought I was going to talk about identity in Christ, 
but I didn't feel like I should preach to 12 people. So I sat in the, in the circle with them around this campfire early in the morning, and we had this conversation about this kind of topic. And, and I basically just asked them um, to share words that had been spoken into their life that shaped the way they viewed themselves. And one big maintenance guy with a Chicago accent broke down as he shared about winning or about placing second in the state track meet. And then his dad said to him, why didn't you win? You know, this huge man, like racking as he's, as he's uh, sharing that. So when he went that deep, everybody went that deep, right? And then somebody else shared about their little brother just, just saying, I admire you. It's all the little brother said to the big brother. I admire you. And he said, that fueled me for years. I wanted to be admirable. I wanted to become admirable. And then my favorite story from my friend named Jackie, she told this story about when she was a little girl, eight, nine years old. Her parents were drunks. She had two older brothers that were way older than her. And they would sit around at night in this dark house watching TV. Everybody just watching TV and drinking. At the commercial breaks, she would stand in front of the TV and she would perform these little one-person skits that she had written. And she would put on costumes and perform these little plays. And, as, and they would tolerate it, but as soon as the show came back on, it was like, get out of the way, Jackie, you're so weird. Get out of the way, Jackie, you're so weird. When she was nine years old. When she's 40 years old, she's in therapy with her husband. And she's trying to explain why she does or doesn't do certain things. And she says, and so I like to blow it off at one point. She says, well, you know, I'm just weird. I'm just weird. And, 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 the, and the therapist pressed in on that. Who told you you were weird? And so Jackie told the story about the little one-person plays in front of the commercials during TV time. And, and the therapist said to her, you're not weird. That wasn't weird. That was brilliant. That was brilliant. You are brilliant. And it just unlocked something for her. It's hard to, it's hard to tell the story in a way that's effective, I feel like, um, because you just, I wish you could have seen, it just unlocked stuff for her. I'm not weird. I'm brilliant. Um, there was a freedom It was this truth that was, that was spoken into her, washed away a lie. It's the power of words. So let's reject, let's, I invite you to reject this common cultural idea that words don't really matter. And I invite you to pay attention to the destructive power and the creative power of our words. And this week, if you're looking for a really practical way to grow spiritually, be more mindful, more aware of how you affect other people in your life, then do this. Stop talking.